This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London. You're listening to Postdocalypse, a podcast by postgrad students about all things postgrad. We're a team of PhD students at King's College London trying to navigate this crazy world and we'll be showing the highs and lows of postgraduate study. Welcome to episode number six, and I'm your presenter, Harris Schwabe, and I'm a PhD student at the Centre of Neuroimaging Sciences at the Denmark Hill campus. And joining us later on the panel will be Katie Begg and Ali Lautorescu. Today, I'm here with Joe, who's a second-year PhD student, part of the Cultural and Social Neuroscience Lab based at the Denmark Hill campus, and his research is looking at the effect of dopamine on our beliefs and delusions. Welcome, Joe, to the podcast. Thank you. What's the most common delusion people have about your research? <laughs> that is interesting. <laughs> um, what's the most common delusion people have about What do people research? get wrong? Because like, one of the problems we have as PhD students is that yeah. our tied PhD title never quite explains what we're actually doing. Yeah, I think people get wrong all the time that you can kind of explain everything immediately by knowing one simple neural pathway, mm. which is kind of ironic because that's kind of what my PhD is looking at. But yeah. um, I think the most interesting bit about my PhD is the fact that we're trying to connect um, something that's very neurological to something that is effectively very complex and subjective. Um, and that is often mistaken when you read the literature thus far. Like yeah. you kind of read it and you think, oh, well... Um, they've obviously found a lot of presynaptic dopamine increase yeah. in uh, people with psychosis. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just to kind of break that down a little bit, effectively what that means is that they found elevated dopamine in people yeah. who are unwell yeah. um, with, with psychosis or, or schizophrenia or whatever you want to call it. Um, so just to interrupt you for a second, dopamine yeah. is probably the most famous neurotransmitter that people know. How important is it, generally speaking, and what is its exact role in beliefs and delusions? Because I don't think people quite get that because we talk about it in its function sort of the risk reward scenario mm. in human behavior but how, what's its role in belief and delusion um well at the moment like um they've kind of found that people that have delusions seem to have um elevated dopamine okay right um but really it doesn't account for why delusions aren't in every single kind of subject that you could imagine about beliefs right so first of all if we break that down delusions specifically when you when people present as unwell yeah typically tend to be like quite paranoid okay uh, quite threatening yeah um maybe there's quite a lot of paranormal beliefs in there so like things happening that are connected that otherwise couldn't possibly be connected when you think about it kind of rationally and at the moment the literature's only basically said well, it's interesting that people that have delusions yeah. seem to have elevated dopamine, but there's no actual causal mechanism that we found at the moment, really, yeah. that kind of links specific subjective experiences with neural response. So that's kind of where I'm stepping in. So obviously, the delusions you're talking about, you're talking about the extreme sort of pathological end of it, mm. of what possible delusions a person can have. Mm. But there's a spectrum, right? All of us suffer from some sort of delusion or irrational thoughts or beliefs about the external world Do, is there any connection with that and our, our dopamine as well or is that mediated by some other mechanism so in research at the moment they kind of place delusion in a very separate category from belief okay so they wouldn't say that right okay i see what i mean yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 well i mean but this is up for debate right and i'm kind of arguing um 
or, or I seem to be arguing that um, belief and delusion are kind of on a spectrum. Yeah. Like, like you were saying, with delusion at a very uh, far end of yeah. of things. Now, when I say delusion, I mean in the medical sense, you're, you're, you're quite unwell. Like it, there's something that you believe in that is causing you functional problems. Okay, It's right. not just that you believe in something that you might not believe, you know, I might not say something and you go, well, you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. And you go, well, he's deluded. But it's affecting your life, essentially. But it's affecting my life. Yeah, I, yeah. I would I would say, you know, if we look at the spectrum of between belief and delusion, let's say belief is the most healthy belief you can have that is purely in keeping with your environment. Okay. Um, and a delusion is the most unhealthy belief that you can have. Yeah. Um, you believe something even in the face of poor function um, in kind of counter evidence everywhere. Mm-hmm. In the middle, you tend to have these things called overvalued ideas. Um, okay. So the idea that you kind of hold on to maybe a belief a bit too much. Um, I wouldn't call it delusional because it doesn't make you unwell necessarily, but it might. Um, Could you give be... us an example? Yeah. Um, What's an over? Because I an overvalued like idea. Overvalued ideas. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> is that not just being opinionated? Or possibly, or, or like holding on to your convictions? Maybe. So maybe I think I'm. Uh, a great speaker on a podcast right <laughs> and if everyone comes up to me afterwards and goes like you know you could probably improve here and there yeah. and i go now nah, i think you're wrong because actually i think i'm a great speaker yeah, yeah. that might be an overvalued idea so my idea yeah. is that i'm a great speaker on a podcast but actually people are telling me around but the evidence is saying actually you're not very good um but i'm keeping yeah. on to that i'm holding on to that with all i can for whatever mm. reason it's important to me okay now it's not stumping my functionality i still have people that I talk to I yeah. probably still get on with people that are telling me I'm crap at talking <laughs> um, but at the same time yeah. I, I believe this thing fervently um, so it's not a delusion it's probably an overvalued idea and you might have some insight into that there might be a bit of you that goes actually kind of I do I do think I'm not very good at speaking yeah so there might be a bit of you that has some insight into that but people with delusions don't tend to have any insight into it they don't tend to have um, any inkling that what they believe might be wrong, and that's re- that really starts to affect how they live day to day. But okay, so how I might have got this completely wrong, but don't people who suffer from delusion at least have some sort of, at least for themselves, a rational basis for believing in it? I'm thinking about stuff you see in movies where someone thinks the CIA is hunting them, and they have some semi plausible reasons to believe that, but which to an objective person sound ridiculous, but there is some attempt at logic there. Mm. Is that the case in what we see in real life clinically? Do people? So this is a really good question. Like, and then, how do you differentiate that with your belief that you're a really good podcast speaker? Yeah. So I think that's a really good question. So your point was: is there is this kind of a product of strange experiences, but you're but you're processing it rationally? Mm-hmm. So there is there is theories in delusion that the idea is that. Um, strange experiences lead to normal rational thinking to think that that strange experience is something that you might consider a delusion right yeah except that you get people that have strange experiences a lot that don't necessarily have delusions mm-hmm. you have people that um hallucinate for example and they they actually consider it to be a part of themselves yeah, yeah. um it, it doesn't necessarily come from another realm or something like that yeah, yeah. um you have people that are watched all the time. We're constantly aware that we're being watched and monitored, mm-hmm. but we're not worried that there's a government agency after us. Yeah. And we might have, a, we might have some kind of threat about it, but we, yes. so yeah. it, it's kind of a sliding scale actually. And there's probably yeah. something in between that we're trying to look at. Yeah. What, what moves that sliding scale from being something that you can kind of crit, have critical inquiry about yeah, yeah. to something that then just is completely inaccessible to you being able to control it. It's just something that you believe. Where does it become solidified? Okay. So that's the point at what, I'm looking at in my research and okay. actually if you look at the paranoia research in terms of um, 
how do we process harm, for example? So you can, yeah, yeah. It, this kind of leads into my methodology a little bit, actually. So if you, if, if you look at um, paranoia and how they measure paranoia in yeah. research, um, more recently, they tend to use economic games. So in your PhD, uh, is it economic games that you're using as well? So partly I am. Partly we're looking at um, general higher order beliefs, which is basically ideas that I give you a statement and you tell me how much you believe in it and how much you're interested in that. What do you mean by higher order? So, for example, um, do you believe in God? Okay, do you believe right. that democracy is the right way forward? So really abstract ideas. Abstract concepts, but they're kind of within themes. So what we've done is we've created a measure that gives you a range of statements of beliefs um, across themes. And what we want to do is we want to look at if specific themes change as a result of um, us manipulating your dopamine. So what themes have you chosen? So we've got political themes, science, yeah. morality, religion, and paranormal. Okay. And we so all the interesting ones. All the, all the interesting <laughs> ones. All the ones that you want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. All the ones that are controversial. Yeah. Um, and we've got some control questions in there as well. Things that you would consider factual. For, for example, the Earth revolves around the sun. Right? Interesting. Okay. So you hope that people would answer like, of course I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Right? What's your recruitment population? Uh, so we're looking, so for the drug study, yeah. um, we're looking at about 40 people and that's a within subject design. So they're going to be going through uh, a double blind, um, placebo controlled trial. Okay. Uh, one trial they'll be getting, uh, their dopamine potentiated. Trial, did you say? trial. Oh, one trial. Sorry. sorry yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no child. Yeah. No children. <laughs> no children right. involved. So they're all adults. They're yeah. all adults. Yeah. They're all healthy adults. Okay. Um, in one trial, they're going to be, uh, having their dopamine potentiated. So they're going to have an increase in dopamine through a drug we're going to give them. Uh, another trial, they're going to have placebo, so mm -hmm. nothing, apart from their expectation, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, and another trial, we're going to have um, a drug that inhibits their dopamine. So what we would hypothesize is that certain themes of belief will pop out uh, that are tended to be more characteristic with psychosis. So, for example, paranormal belief might pop out more than religious belief, or it might pop out more than political belief, for example. And if you can show a connection there between um, potentiating dopamine and specific themes of belief, we're sort of on our way to understanding how neural mechanisms that underlie our normal beliefs might mm. work. So I'm not so when you say uh, say political beliefs, are they like a positive or negative? Like for example, let's say the question, "Do you believe in God?" Mm. or "Do you not believe in God?" would have very different responses. I would expect from somebody say suffering from paranoia. Mm. Um, the idea of believing in God would be something, so the idea of God gives you, you know, solace and consolation, and so a paranoid person would be less likely to believe that, no? Uh, like, how do you, how do you frame that. your beliefs? Oh, how do you, how do you frame those statements, sorry? Well, it's within subject, so it doesn't matter whether they agree oh, okay. or disagree. We're just interested in the change over time. Right, okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so, and also we're interested in their, um, their own personal interest in these statements. And also how relevant these statements are to them. So we get them to rate Separate that as well. Rating, yeah, yeah. And actually, but we're quite interested in that aspect of things as well, because we would expect that um, manipulations to dopamine will affect that as well. Okay. Now, we've actually looked at this uh, questionnaire in the general population. So we've got about a thousand people in a study to validate this uh, yeah. measure. And you kind of see actually that these, um, there's sort of a clustering around agreement and a clustering around relevance and interest. Mm -hmm. So basically what that says is that there might be different cognitive mechanisms that actually might underlie these two aspects of how we believe in things. Yeah. Um, so what all we're trying to do is break belief down into its dimensions yeah. and have a look at if dopamine actually manipulates those individually. Okay. And that will give us something really interesting 
to go on with yes, yeah, about yeah. how that might then affect delusion and is there some sort of connection with belief. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that's kind of one side of what we're looking at. So yeah. higher order beliefs, okay. uh, these statements. And then the other side of it is we're going to be using those economic games I was talking about earlier to okay. look at paranoia. Okay, so now we want to talk about um, what it's like uh, to explore entrepreneurial side projects while doing a PhD. And mm. Joe, you've, um, you're the managing director of Sensecapes, which mm-hmm. is a neuroscience, music and art collaboration where you're trying to communicate complex human experiences using neuroscientific data. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so uh, in Sensecapes, um, our, our kind of our MO is to um, take neuroscientific data from very interesting uh, conscious experiences, maybe like psychedelic experiences, meditation, mm-hmm. hearing voices. Yep. And we convert that into an audio-visual experience uh, and an immersive one so that we can take people that have never had that experience and sit them down in the middle of this room um, or in the middle of our exhibition and, and try and feed to them something of what it is like to have the experience of the people that the data was recorded from. Interesting. So what sort of responses do you get from people? So our most recent exhibition, mm. uh, we took, uh, we were kindly given data by the uh, psychedelic research group at Imperial um, of uh, people who are on um, psilocybin mushrooms and the brain data recorded maybe about six years ago uh, of what the neural response was for, for, for people taking psychedelic mushrooms. And we wanted to try and recreate for people the experience of what that moment was like for a lot of um, people in the study. Yeah. Maybe how that uh, subjective narrative was for them. Maybe how it, it helped them. Maybe how it didn't help them. And then following this, we kind of had a panel discussion with some experts chatting about where we are with the field. So it was kind of a, a, a dual process exercise, really. Um, one where you're in a, a kind of a half an hour immersive experience, trying to be, yeah. be in the moment with this experience. And then another one about science, science engagement and, yeah, and yeah. education. And um, the response has been uh, actually quite flattering, really. Like we had um, so someone from the psilocybin trials at Imperial when they looked at how psilocybin mushrooms might affect depression. Mm-hmm. One of the participants from that came along. Yeah. Who am I me saying his name? Because he likes to speak about it a lot. He's okay. called uh, Ian Rulia. And um, he often talks about uh, how the, the psychedelic experience was a meaningful experience for him. And we, and he, he sat among our immersive experience and he said it was pretty, pretty spot on. Oh, and okay. It, that's a good stamp of approval. That is, that was sort of yeah, the highest, yeah, yeah. the highest level of that's pretty good yeah, kind, yeah, of, yeah. kind of things. So that was really cool. Um, and also they might be using it for future psychedelic trials at Imperial um, to play to people while they're on, on uh, psychedelics. Uh, what, as a research tool or? So they usually have music playing while people are having oh, these experiences okay. and they suggest, or a couple of the people from the trial suggest they might use the piece that we wrote um, for future trials. Okay, interesting. So we've mentioned this like a couple of times, I think, in, in previous episodes where we've talked about balancing different workloads, whether it's um, interdisciplinary research or, you know, multiple supervisors. But you're doing something, you obviously got your whole PhD, and then you're doing something completely outside of academia in terms of the organization of it all. What drove you to it? Why did you take on that extra workload? Um, well, before I kind of went back into academia, uh, maybe like four years back now, um, I was I was doing music production sort of okay. in my early twenties. I was I was I was a musician, so uh, a lot of my time um, was producing music, and I kind of miss that. <laughs> and also, I find that it's um, 
a very, very good balancer to the otherwise very technical, um, conceptually rational work of a scientist. So yes. I really enjoy um, that I can kind of do my day job of PhD stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then in the gaps that I have, slot in this kind of balancing act of music and so, yeah. and 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 talking to people about interesting science which i think is more of a kind of emotional thing to do than a technical one although yeah. it inevitably involves technical skill back to the the first question i asked or the second one was about how sensecase was born how did you organize it like what was the nitty-gritty of it yeah, yeah. How, how do we bother coming together yeah doing? exactly yeah um so we met because um, everyone has ideas and like wouldn't it be nice if we did this but then you did it how do we bring it together yeah yeah so, as I said, it's kind of a perfect storm of all of us in the team um, having an interest in communicating science in an interesting artistic way and all of us just having different skills that fit together. So mm. uh, my colleagues, my co-founders, Tim and Tim and Stephen, uh, brilliant data analysts uh, and neuroscientists who, who analyse the data. Abby, brilliant visual artist and myself a musician um, and I also act as managing director for the, for the company. Um, so we came together sort of last year, 2017, mm -hmm. um, and we actually met at a hackathon, an a uh, AXNS hackathon, uh, which was AXN, AXNS, AXNS. Explain that. So they're they're basically uh, a group that also do science engagement um, for uh, PhD students. Okay. Uh, a couple of them are postdocs now. Right. Um, I don't know what they're doing at the moment, but they seem to have died down in, in their activity. But anyway, they, they did this uh, hackathon yeah. uh, where we were given LSD data from, from the same group and mm -hmm. we were told to do something interesting with it. So when you um, say LSD data, what what's the what were we measuring? So it was uh, magnetoencephalography okay, so, data yeah. okay. uh, from people who were on LSD yeah. uh, in that kind of iconic trial that I think was published in PS, PNAS. Uh, by that, psychedelic research group mm -hmm. and uh and we took that data and we did something interesting with, with it we we made a, a piece of music from it um at me abby and Stephen. tim joined just after that um and we just decided we wanted to do more of it because i think we decided that it was an important thing to try and engage neuroscience and art um because they're just some things that are much better said with um, a piece of music or a picture. Of course, yeah. That I, I think sometimes when you look at a, a journal, it's, it's obviously we could interpret it probably, but if you're um, part of the public, it might not be that meaningful. And yeah. so you rely on scientists to communicate that effectively to you. Yeah. And when you're trying to communicate something that's very complex, like, yeah. like a psychedelic experience, yeah. um, I think it requires something extra than just saying this is what the data shows. So... Um, how do you manage to sustain it? So it's been a year. Mm. So is it just all sweat equity? Like, or how do you fund yourselves? How do you find the time? How do you pay for your costs? So we've been given uh, a few grants now. We've been given a grant um, from the MRC. Okay. Uh, we've been given a grant by the Science Gallery. Um, we've been given a grant by the Wellcome Trust uh, Horizon 2020 program. Fantastic. So yeah. we're, we're, we're relying on public funding to get yeah. this going. Um, is there going to be a point where we can start doing this um, in like kind of a business way? I don't know. We don't yeah. know yet. But at the moment, we're just enjoying doing this and kind of building up mm. the way on our process and our um, skills communicating science. Really. Yeah. What about 
targeting a completely, say, non-science interested population, i.e. the rest of the world, <laughs> where it would be like almost entertainment value? Um, or is that not something you thought? Well, I, I like to think that we secretly uh, communicate science through entertainment. Yeah, of course. So I, I think, um, you know, most of the public that came along, obviously they were interested in our exhibitions, this is, most of them that came along were obviously interested in the subject matter. Yeah. Um, but there were, there weren't necessarily scientists. There were people that were just interested in yeah. science, which I could, I, I think is a lot of the population mm-hmm. and also just wanted to have a unique experience. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. And that's what we provide. So, yeah. You know, it makes it sound like a commodity, and that's fine. And I guess, I guess it is. But at the same time, I'd like to think of it as a bit more of like a uh, something that we're trying to do for other people. We're trying to put mm-hmm. people in a situation that helps them to build a bridge with whoever it was that was experiencing this at the time. Yeah. And I think we're trying to build connections between people, so it doesn't quite feel such a, a ravine between them and someone who's had an interesting meditation experience, or or them and someone who who is who is unwell. Yeah. If we can close that gap. It will just make people more empathetic, and I think it will also communicate something that is quite vital to the way the research moves forward. Yeah. Those are very lofty goals. Lofty, but I think achievable. (laughs) Thanks for that, Joe. I think now would be a good time to hear what our panel thinks about some of the stuff we've been chatting about. Hearing about Senscapes is great because I think I'm really interested in this crossover between the visual world and neuroscience and how Mm. how you can link that in and create a really immersive, interesting um, piece of artwork, basically. So let me get this right. You create music from brain data yes okay so what kind of music do you play so um i suppose some of it is like my particular style that i add to it Mm. um because that's just naturally i suppose how a musician works right um so are you sitting there at the back with it with a triangle or something is that what you do (laughs) it's all all i have to say it's all pre-recorded so it was all all kind of produced using um like professional software um i used to use when i used to be a musician and um, it's it, you kind of have to use special synthesis to do it because you can't just take a raw sound file and and do something with that, right? So mm. you have to break it down using a thing called a granular synth, and then you can put that back together. So basically, what that means is that it breaks a sound file down, which is very complex, into all of its component parts. So you can imagine a, a complex sound file, just like um, an ensemble of instruments playing at the same time, mm-hmm. right? You're hearing the song, but actually that song is composed of many different parts. So every sound file, every everything that you hear, so my voice speaking right now is exactly the same as that's a complex sound. You can break that down into its component sections and reform that into something that might sound a bit nicer. So I can take a raw sound file that I would do from someone's brain data um, that Tim and, and Stephen expertly mm-hmm. extract and from different parts of the head, from different times in their psilocybin experience, I can break that down and reform it into a sound that might actually sound a bit more pleasurable. Because otherwise, if you listen to it, it just sounds like noise, really. Mm. I mean, yeah. different variations of noise, but noise. I guess that's someone's music. Somewhere. <laughs> someone's music somewhere is that, but it's not mine, I'm afraid. So what, when you say when you say that you, you're using your experience as a musician, like, do you play any instruments or is there any kind of like, or is it just composing? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I play piano and guitar, um, but like, who doesn't, right? Um, but I, 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 I guess, I, I guess, I prefer um, composing a lot more and kind of arranging mm-hmm. and designing sounds. So for me, this was purely a production piece mm. where I kind of I, I worked out some of the arrangements, um, obviously using a piano and a guitar, mm. um, and actually I had a co-writer on one of the um, 
one of the tracks, Will Smith, um, not not the Will Smith, obviously. <laughs> like just my, dropping names. <laughs> my very my tall, white, skinny friend, Will Smith, uh, who's um, a very very talented musician. He co-wrote one of the pieces mm-hmm. with me. But effectively, it's a process of of writing the notes, mm-hmm. and then the way that you use it on a digital medium is that you can map any sound that you want to that. So effectively, what I could do is write a composition, and then. Obviously, if you're, it's almost like you're pressing piano keys without hearing any sound coming out of it. And then I just put a different sound into the piano, as it were. And then the sound that comes out is the sound that I've designed using the data. So the progression is my own, but the, the sound that you map to it is, is bespoke. That's really cool. So I know loads of people have done that in the past with, with painting. So mm. this is just kind of a slightly different take on it, I, I guess. I guess it? so. Yeah. Um, when you say you mean people have like taken acid and done a painting, yeah, and I'm also thinking of of people who have synesthesia. Do you, have mm. you do you know anything about that? Yeah, so we actually wanted to do a piece on synesthesia. I think that's one of our original yeah. ideas: is that we'd love to kind of do some sort of multi sensory experience yeah, with people with synesthesia. I have I have very very mild synesthesia in that um, I'd usually just associate different colours with different notes. Okay, yeah, but that's it. So, yeah. so kind of music and colour. Yes, okay. but it's not a visual thing. I don't yeah, see yeah. colour. I just associate that like C sharp is obviously blue. Do you feel like that's something that helps you learn music? Like, is it easier for you to remember like sequences of notes because you can associate them with colours or not? No, really? it seems to be completely okay. useless. Yeah, in fact, yeah. if anything, I learn notes a lot better about their, their spatial positioning. Mm, mm. So actually, the the colour and note association is completely useless. It just seems to be something that I do. So hmm. that certain things are certain colours and that's it. You seem to be doing so much more outside of your PhD. And I think everyone has this idea that PhDs are so time consuming. And so, you know, you have to dedicate your whole life to your PhD. What is it, your opinion of that? Like, do you feel like your PhD does allow you more time to do other things because it's quite flexible? Yeah, I think one of the... I mean, you know, you don't get paid a bunch to get to do a PhD. So I think one of the things that you should take as an advantage is the fact that your time management is so flexible. Um, and really, like, if, you should really choose a PhD as well based upon something that you're genuinely interested in. And so it doesn't really mm-hmm. feel like that much work, yeah, to be honest, yeah. to kind of do my research. I really enjoy it. Um, and, you know, I'd like to meet a PhD student that isn't inconfident about what they do, mm-hmm. but... The one thing I am confident about is my time management. <laughs> that's all. I think and, that's, yeah, that, that's such an important thing to have because otherwise yeah. you wouldn't be able to be managing all of these things that you're doing. Yeah. I, have, I have to say I've kind of, um, I've learned to time manage, but I don't know about you guys, but when you're in the lab and there is an experiment that is, it takes X amount of time and you can't mm. really, you can't really make up that time and you literally have to be in the lab for 12 hours and that I find cool. quite difficult. Because you do wet lab stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wet lab I feel is slightly yeah. different maybe. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it is obviously still really important to have your things outside of the lab and yeah. I, I think it gives me a focus to have something to do after I finish or to aim for to finish. What do five. you do after you finish? What's your side well, hustle? <laughs> I, I do this podcast. Um, and I'm also doing another podcast that um, will be released soon, which Ooh. will be called Franken Wine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so okay. it's, it's a wine and science podcast. So we talk about Frankenstein science and drink wine. That is good. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's super fun. Well, I mean, you talk professionally. That's good. Yeah, right? well, maybe. Yeah. I like to do stuff where I just talk all the time. <laughs> well, I guess this is it, right? That's pretty that's good. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's why podcasting is so good. But I mean, it's something the scientists didn't really do much until recently. So it's nice to like 
see so many PhD students getting engaged in so many other things, like doing public engagement, like everything you're doing with a science gallery and, mm. you know, like it teaches the public about yeah. science. Like science doesn't stay within the walls of science anymore. Do you think, for both of you, do you think this is something that anyone can do as a PhD student or do you think you have to be lucky enough to have a supervisor that allows you the freedom to be doing stuff like this? Mm. Both. Yeah. Um, my supervisors are great, so they're very... They trust me, so um, they luckily just, you know, leave me to my own devices unless mm. I need help, which is great, uh, and in which case they're on hand. So I, I would say I know it's not the same for every PhD student, but yeah. I'm very lucky to have supervisors like I do where they kind of will give me the support when I need it, mm. but otherwise yeah. kind of let me do my thing. Yeah, I, I think you're really lucky in, in that aspect. And I've I've spoken before about how I think every PhD student's experience is completely different and mm. you can't really compare them. Um, I think I'm careful now to only do my side hustles after five o'clock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if that means getting in the lab at 7.30, then that's what I'll do. But oh, wow. I, I think, you know, I, I need that separation from doing my lab stuff and my PhD mm. stuff in the daytime and everything else in the evening. Um, I think it's it's different when you're wet lab based. Like I don't know what your experience is. Like the way I do it is like if I have you know I have a certain time slot in which I have a participant coming in. Yeah. So obviously I have to be in the lab for that. Mm. But anything other than those times, I can be doing my work. If yeah. it's not data analysis that you know requires me to use the computers that I have at work, then I could be you know writing or reading papers. Yeah. Outside of nine to five. And PhD students are always more flexible. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's definitely down to the person, I'd say. Yeah, definitely yeah. down to the person. And as you said, like, there's a number of contextual factors, right? Mm. Supervisor, what your project's on, what methods you use, mm-hmm. and also motivation. And how much energy you have, because yeah. it's exhausting sometimes <laughs> yeah, yeah. when you're trying to do everything, because yeah. you might be one of those people who, who wants to do everything. I feel like I'm a bit like that. I just want to do everything all at once and have a million different things going, but... It can be quite tiring. Yeah. <laughs> so so what's next then for Sunscapes? What kind of things are you going to be doing in the future, if you know that already? Yeah, um, so I think what's next is two things, uh, imminently. Um, so I am going to try and persuade Chris Timmerman from the Psychedelic Research Group to give me his DMT data. Mm. And I'd like to make um, some music and, and art with uh, my co-founders, um, What's, what's DMT data? Uh, so dimethyltryptyline, which is a very potent psychedelic. Cool. That his research is specifically on. It's really interesting. Okay. Um, and it seems to have very unique experiences in that drug. Um, and I'd love to write a piece that is the DMT experience, you know? Mm. I thought that'd be mm. really fun. He doesn't actually know I'm going to try and persuade him about this yet. So if he hears this... <laughs> this is how he's going to find he's out. He's going to find out. <laughs> Maybe um, you can just play that episode to him. Yeah, exactly. And just be like, please, Chris, give me your data. I've said it now. <laughs> so I've said it on here now, so he has to give it to me. Definitely. Um, but he's got some really interesting data, so I'd like to turn that into into music. Mm-hmm. And also, um, we've got an, a more kind of substantial up-and-coming project that we're doing with a researcher at King's. Uh, she's called Elena Antonova. She's a meditation uh, expert in terms of um, her research and also, I think, personal practice. Um, and we're going to work together with her to try and create a piece that tries to um, capture the meditation experience and maybe what it's like to to have an experience as an expert meditator being very much in the moment. And that kind of is in contrast to the psychedelic experience because I would say that even though... Um, you go through what well, people would argue you go through a transformative experience. It's very much more about being centered and about being balanced in, in yourself, mm-hmm. right? 
whereas the psychedelic experience is almost unbalancing yourself so that you can then find a center afterwards. Um, and that sounds a bit abstract, but what it's I kind mean of like is like you're uncoupling your control over your brain. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is this is what the researchers would argue. Uh, like the, the psychedelic research group would argue that you are uncoupling yourself from your normal way of thinking mm -hmm. and allowing yourself to form new behavioral patterns and new ways of addressing a subject or yourself mm -hmm. or what it means to be you, right? Meditation is is very much uh, about being capturing that balance or maybe capturing that transformative experience, um, but done in a much more controlled and subtle way. Um, and so it might actually be quite fitting that the meditation um, experience that we create might give you the same feeling afterwards of being centered or in the moment, but maybe just the, the sound and the visuals will be a lot calmer, and maybe a lot more slow to develop than the psychedelic one that was a lot more right you're at a stage now where things are kicking off you know brilliant good luck with all of it thank you thanks joe for taking the time to chat with us today um please let our listeners know where they can find you on twitter and other social media and anything else you'd like them to know yeah thanks uh for having me it's been um it's been good fun uh you can find me on twitter uh, at joe barnby i'm very inventive i know do you want to spell barnby Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so it's J-O-E for Joe, obviously. And then uh, Barnby is uh, B-A-R-N-B-Y. And also you can follow Sendscapes um, at Sendscapes, and that's S-E-N-S-C-A-P-E-S. -E and I also want to plug uh, an event that uh, the lab that I'm in uh, is doing at Science Gallery on the 21st and 22nd of September. We've got uh, the biggest um, double-blind caffeine experiment ever going on uh, over the two days where you can come and take part in real scientific research. Um, we'll give you um, basically a free coffee. You don't know whether it's caffeinated or not. And then we're going to ask you to take part in a series of um, trials or tasks. Uh, and we just want to see what kind of effect the expectation has upon your performance. Fantastic. Thanks for that, Joe. We'll have all the details in the show notes. So that concludes our podcast today. Thank you very much for joining us. And a special thanks to Joe for sharing about his research, as well as to our panel, Katie and Ali. In our upcoming podcast, we want to talk about all things PhD. So if you would like us to focus on a particular topic or just want to get in contact, then please tweet us at postdocalypse18. Until next time.